Well, thanks for joining us today. Hello to those of you that are tuning in with us online. My name is Jerry, and I'm one of the pastors here at Genesis, and we're really glad to be with you and and worship Jesus with you uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 19. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to continue in our uh, study of the gospel of John today. Um, But as you're turning there, I want to share a story with you that journalist Ellen Vaughn Uh, shared in her book. Uh, The book is called The God Who Hung on the Cross. And it's a pretty fascinating story about how the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ Christ made its way to a small village in northern Cambodia. And this is how the story goes. In September of 1999, there was a man uh, by the name of Pastor Singh, and he traveled to this small remote village in northern Cambodia with the the goal of taking the uh, the message of Jesus there. And uh, really, there were Buddhists there, there were spiritists there, um, but Christianity was really unheard of. But to his surprise, when he arrived in this small rural village, he was amazed at how willingly people received the message of Jesus. In fact, he asked them, he said, tell me, why are you so open and receptive to this message? And when he asked this question to a crowd of villagers, one of the matriarchs shuffled forward out of the crowd. This older lady grabbed Pastor Singh's hands, put his hands in hers and said, here's the truth. We've been waiting for you for 20 years. And you can imagine his, his surprise. And then this old woman began to tell this story, this mysterious story, according to her, um, of the God who hung on a cross. She told Pastor Singh that 20 years before in the 70s, a brutal communist regime had took over Cambodia. They destroyed everything in their path. And then eventually the soldiers made their way to this small village where Pastor Singh was now there to share the message of Jesus. But when the soldiers arrived in 1979, they gathered together all of the villagers and they made them dig their own graves. Now I want you to imagine what it would be like to be summoned with the people that live around you and being forced at gunpoint to dig your own graves for you and your family. Just imagine the trauma of that. So these people begin digging their own graves. And after after they finish digging, Vaughn reports that the people began to cry out. Some of them cried out to Buddha. Some of them cried out to demonic spirits. Some of them cried out to their ancestors. But just imagine the wailing that was taking place in this village. Everyone was afraid to die. But there was one woman There was one woman who cried out to someone different. She remembered a childhood memory, a story that her mother had told her about a God who had hung on a cross. She didn't know who this God was, but she figured if this God really hung on a cross, he would know pain, he would know suffering, he would know fear, and he can relate to my circumstance right now. So this one woman in this village begins crying out to this God who hung on a cross. And then a fascinating thing happened. Everyone in the village joined her in crying out to this God that it hung on a cross and they were crying and they were wailing. And I don't know how long this went on, but after a while, their wails quieted down to where they were just silently crying together. And then the villagers mustered the courage to turn around to look at the soldiers who were there to kill them only to discover they were gone. They were nowhere to be found. And that's when this old lady in this village says to Pastor Singh, we've been waiting for you for 20 years. We've been waiting for someone to come and tell us the rest of the story of the God that hung on a cross. 
Now, you may or may not realize this, but the story of the guy that hung on the cross is the reason that we gather together every weekend as a church family. If you go back and listen to the songs that we just sang this morning, they talk about a God who would send his son to die on a cross. We know who this God is, but I just wanna remind you, this is a story that we celebrate over and over again. And I'm excited to share this story with you again today. We're gonna continue our study through the gospel of John. And in John 19, we arrive at this point in Jesus's life where it's time for him to die. The time has come for him to die on a cross and we're gonna see he's innocent. And yet his time has come. Now, I want you to think of a time that you were accused of something and you were completely innocent. How did that make you feel? What emotions come up inside of you? I had something happen recently. It's kind of funny, but it doesn't really relate to what Jesus went through. But I'm gonna share it with you just because I want you to picture what your emotions are like. I was driving on 465. And if you haven't driven on 465 lately, people are, they are driving fast and they are driving crazy. So I'm just driving down 465, minding my own business and someone speeds past me, but they roll their window down. I'm going 70 miles an hour. They pass me like I'm standing still. They roll their window down, they hang their hand out and they wanted me to know I'm number one. but they weren't hanging out that that finger, right? And I was, guys, I'm being honest with you. I'm not being funny. I was offended. I was angry. I was like, what did I do to this guy? Like, what is his problem? And it like sat and festered with me for 15 or 20 minutes. And the worst part was my wife and kids were in the van with me. So it made for a really fun family conversation, but I felt humiliated. How do you feel when someone accuses you of something that's, it's just not fair? Well, take that and imagine being Jesus. Imagine being put on trial and you haven't done anything wrong, but the crowd that's there, they're angry and they don't want to just humiliate you. They don't want to just put you in jail. They want you to die and they want you to die a gruesome death. That's the picture that we see when we arrive to John 19. But before we jump into John 19, I want to backpedal a little bit and go into John 18. We learned this last week when Dan was teaching through John 18, when Jesus was arrested, he was arrested by an angry mob of Jewish religious leaders and Roman soldiers. And when they took him into custody, eventually Jesus made his way to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He would have been the most powerful man over the city of Jerusalem. He had the power to set Jesus free or to have him executed. And so there is Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. And in John 18, 33, Pilate asked Jesus this one specific question. It was very direct. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Now, of all the questions he could have asked Jesus, why would he ask him, are you the king of the Jews? This is actually a very loaded question. 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth as a man, God had made a promise to Israel's King David. David was the greatest king in all of Israel, in Israel's history, in Israel's history. And God made a promise to David. And I want to share it with you. It was recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 16. God said this to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So a thousand years before Jesus lived, God had made this promise to send a king that would rule and reign forever. And for generations, for generations, the Jews had waited for this king to be revealed. And if you read throughout the gospel of John, we've already heard this. There were several people that were saying, we believe you're the king. We believe you are that king. They would have waited for Jesus to be revealed this way. So that explains how the Jews would see it. But here's the thing, Pilate wasn't Jewish. He was Roman. 
And he, even if he knew of this prophecy, I'm guessing he would not have cared. He didn't worship the Jews' God. So it's got me asking this question, why would, why would Pilate ask Jesus this particular question? Well, we find the answer in the Gospel of John. And we've been saying this a lot over the last few weeks. If you read through the Gospel of John, beginning in John 12, all the way to John chapter 20, what is that, eight or nine chapters? It records the last week of Jesus's life. So even though you cover a lot of material, you're only covering four or five days. And if you go back in John 12, what we learn is four or five days before this, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. And when he arrives, thousands of Jews flood the streets. They're waving palm branches in the air. And this is what they're shouting. In John chapter 12, 13, they say, Hosanna. Hosanna means, oh Lord, save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. What they were declaring was, Jesus, we believe that you are the King that God has promised. And since Pilate was the Roman governor over the city of Jerusalem, I'm guessing he had heard about this large crowd. He had heard that the Jews were crying out that our king has arrived. And now this man is standing in front of him and he says, I've heard a lot about you. I just wanna know, is what the people are saying true? Are you a king? And I want you to listen to Jesus's response in John 18, 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus stood right before Pilate and he never denied. He didn't say, ah, they were being dramatic. He even seems to hint at the fact that he is the eternal king that the Jews had been waiting on all this time which should lead to him being found guilty because anyone that would claim to be a king would be a threat to Caesar and a threat to the Roman empire. But if you read in John 18 and 19, what you discover is Pilate on several different occasions tells the Jewish religious leaders, I don't find anything to accuse this man of. Essentially, Pilate says, I believe that he's innocent. But unfortunately for Jesus, Pilate also felt the need to keep the peace in the city of Jerusalem because he knew that his boss and his boss's boss were watching back in Rome. And he knew that these Jewish religious leaders, they weren't gonna back down without a fight. And so Pilate tries to defuse the situation at Jesus's expense. And this brings us to John chapter 19, verse one, where we simply read, Pilate took Jesus away and had him flogged. Now flogging or scourging was a brutal, brutal form of punishment. It involved stripping a person naked, tying their hands to a post, and then having them beaten over and over and over again with the whip made of leather. But at the end of the leather strands, there were pieces of bone and metal. And the purpose of this whip was to completely shred a person's back to a bloody pulp, to the point that their internal organs would be exposed and would even sometimes fall out. A lot of people died in the process of flogging. Flogging was so brutal that most people didn't survive. And if they did, they would crawl away and they would die of some kind of infection shortly thereafter. So here's a question. Why would Pilate, if he thought that Jesus was innocent, why would he subject him to something so violent? Well, I, the answer really is, is simple. He just wanted to keep the peace. He also wanted the Jews to know that he was in control. But here's the problem. That flogging was just the beginning of Jesus's pain and misery. 
But here's what we're going to see. His status as king was getting ready to be exploited. Look at verses two and three. The soldiers, after flogging Jesus, twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They clothed, the, they clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, hail the king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. So apparently the soldiers had caught on about this rumor that Jesus was some kind of king and they decided to use that information to mock him and to shame him. In Matthew's gospel account, he says that these soldiers put a stick in Jesus's hand as his mock scepter and then they ripped it out of his hand and they just beat him on the head again and again and they would spit on him. Jesus was being mocked for being a king and then the soldiers, they pushed this crown of thorns down on his head, clearly to make fun of his status as king. But I think that this crown has a deeper meaning. If you go back to the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve first sinned against God in the garden, we learned that there were all kinds of curses that came forward. One of those curses was on the land. And God said, the ground is cursed now and it's going to produce thorns and thistles. So that crown that the, that the soldiers used to mock Jesus ironically also represents the pain of sin and death that had entered into the world. So I want you to see if you can imagine in your mind what this scene must have been like. Jesus is beaten. He's bloody. He's being mocked and spit on. He's got this crown of thorns on his head. And he's beginning to bear the weight of the sins of the world. He was completely innocent and Pilate knew it. And you get the sense as you read on that, that Jesus's innocence was weighing on Pilate. Look at verse four. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against this man. This is the second time Pilate says, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. But look at verse five. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, here is the man. So here's the picture. After having Jesus brutally flogged, Pilate reintroduces him to the Jewish religious leaders in hopes that when they see him, their hatred for him would be satisfied. And Pilate says this phrase, here is the man. That phrase can also be translated as, look at this poor creature. Do you see what Pilate's trying to do? I don't know if you and I could actually, if we tried to imagine how beat up Jesus was, I don't know that it's possible for us, but there's a fascinating detail about this that's found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, God gave this image to the prophet Isaiah. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Have you seen someone that's disfigured before? It's hard to look at. 700 years before, God says, write this down, Isaiah. This is what the king is gonna look like. And now Pilate is saying, here is the man. Look at this poor guy. Hasn't he had enough? Can't you just let him be? Let him crawl away and die. But Jesus's misery was gonna continue. Look at verse six. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. This is the third time 
But Pilate says, I believe that this man is innocent. But the crowd wanted Jesus dead. Look at verse seven. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. The only claim they had against him was that he claimed to be God. And there's an Old Testament law that says that's a, that is worth death. But they were ignoring Jesus's body of work. They were looking past all the miracles he had performed. They were looking past the fact that Jesus had always modeled love and grace. He showed people what it was like to know God and to love others with God's love. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside to the palace and he asked Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to set you free or to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This is a really strange scene. Everyone knew that Pilate was the person in control. The Jewish religious leaders needed Pilate to sign off on Jesus's murder. They couldn't do it on their own. And it looks like Jesus's fate rests in Pilate's hands, but Pilate's afraid to make the right decision. And then you compare that with Jesus. Somehow he's managing to stand in front of Pilate. He's bleeding to death, but he stands there almost with, with this humble confidence because he knew this was all part of his father's plan. And at this point, nothing was gonna stop him from carrying out the work of his life to die for the sins of the world. And again, if you keep reading, you just get this idea that Pilate is done. He doesn't want anything to do with anything that's taking place. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now that phrase, a friend of Caesar, was actually, it was an official title that some people had in the Roman Empire. It was one of the highest honors was to be known as a, as a friend of Caesar. And it would come with a ring. And on that ring, it would, be, it would have the inscription, friend of Caesar. So you could wear the ring around and everyone would know, oh, that's one of the friends of Caesar. So it came with lots of privileges, but it also came with very high standards. And if you did not live up with the standards, it wasn't just that your ring would be taken or that your status would be stripped away you would actually be banished from the empire and ostracized from Roman life. Pilate's job as a friend of Caesar was to keep the peace in Jerusalem. If he kept the peace, he could keep his job. But if he lost the peace, he could lose his life. He could lose everything. And so when the religious leaders accuse Pilate of not being a friend of Caesar, they're playing their trump card. They're saying, you have to do this. Because if you don't, we're gonna create such a scene that you're gonna lose everything that you have. Look at verse 13. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon and Pilate said, here is your king. Now, I don't know. I don't know this for sure. I have to imagine that Pilate was probably pretty annoyed with how obnoxious the Jewish religious leaders were being. And I don't know if he said, here is your king in a way that was sarcastic, but he wasn't backing down either. 
He's already made this assessment and now he's saying, here is your king, but this set the crowd off. Look at verse 15. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. And listen to what they say. We have no king but Caesar. What's wrong with that phrase? They would have known. They would have remembered the promise that God had made a thousand years before to send a king, to send a Messiah who would save them and set them free. And now they're saying, we have no king but Caesar. They weren't only rejecting the idea of Jesus being their king. I think in their religious zeal, they were blinded to the things that God had promised. They were rejecting what God had promised to send them. And in this final rejection, we see God's ultimate plan come to completion. Look at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Crucifixion is considered to be one of the most painful punishments ever invented by mankind. It's known for being slow and painful. They would take the person and basically parade them all over the city as a way to embarrass them and to make a statement. It was a punishment that was specifically reserved for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the worst of the worst criminals. To give you an idea of just how horrible crucifixion is, we get our English word excruciating from the same word crucifixion. And now in his innocence, Jesus is being led away to experience an excruciating death on a cross. And I'm just gonna let John tell you the rest of the story from his word. Verse 16, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. They nailed his hands and his feet to the cross and he had two other people crucified on either side of him, but Jesus was in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where he was crucified was right outside the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek so that several people could read it. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came to break the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given his testimony and his testimony is true. He knows what he tells is the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. 
At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the story of the God that hung on a cross. It's the story of a God who entered into the world that he had created. It's the story of a God that became human so that he could die in our place to take on the penalty of our sin and our death. It is the story of our forgiveness. It is the story of our salvation. And it comes with it. And it comes as a, as a gift from God to anyone who would receive it through faith in Jesus. In John 19, we find Jesus taking on the penalty of the sins of the world And there's a point behind this. The point is that Jesus paid a debt that you and I could never repay. A debt we could never repay. In John chapter one, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In those days, lambs were offered as a sacrifice on a daily basis. The people would offer a lamb as a way to admit, God, I'm a sinner and I'm letting this lamb die to confess my sins to you. But when John says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, John was saying, that's the lamb of God. He's gonna die in our place and we'll never have to sacrifice again. Jesus paid for all sin once and for all. In Isaiah, Isaiah wrote that our righteous acts, the things that we do that we think make us look really good are nothing better than a pile of filthy rags before God. In his letter to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul described it this way. He said, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, who was completely innocent to be a sin offering for us so that in him, we could receive the righteousness of God. We could become righteous in God's sight. And you know, sin isn't just big things like murder or stealing or having an affair. Sin is all the little things that we do to hurt other people, the lies that we tell, the things that we try to hide. But when Jesus died, As the Lamb of God on the cross, he died to pay for our pride and our selfishness, our gossip and our greed, all the hurtful comments we've made, all the the things that we do that say, God, I think I know better than you. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said, everyone has sinned, every single one of us, and the wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is forgiveness through faith in his son, Jesus. When Jesus died his innocent death, he did so so that you and I can experience the forgiveness of God. It's a gift that's available to all of us, but it also leads us to a decision point because we all have a choice to make. I have a choice to make, you have a choice to make. If someone gives you a gift and you never open the gift, you never really received the gift. And I can't make this decision for you, you can't make it for me. You have to decide what are you going to do with the gift of Jesus's life in your place. Now you've heard the story of the God that hung on a cross, but have you, have you received this gift of his death in your place? Have you received the forgiveness of sins that he makes available? Or will you reject it? Do you really think that when your life runs out, you can stand before a holy God and say, I did my best. I tried to be better than other people. What he's gonna say is, it's not good enough. My son was good enough. That's why I sent him to die in your place. 
there's a familiar picture that's associated with Jesus's death on the cross. We talked about it earlier in John 19. John tells us that Jesus was crucified between two other criminals. Now, John doesn't give us any other details, but in Luke's gospel, he says that each of these men, we get to see how their decision played out. One of them on one side of Jesus took the way of the religious leaders. And instead of relying on Jesus for forgiveness, he hurled insults at Jesus. He took all his frustration out on Jesus. He said, if you're so good, if you're God's son, if you're the savior of the world, why don't you come down and save the rest of us? He rejected Jesus. But Luke tells us on the other side, the other criminal says, you fool. We're dying for sins that we deserve. He's innocent. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says these words to this thief hanging on a cross. Today, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. That man's last dying words were Jesus, I believe in you. And Jesus says, that's enough. That's all that's required. That's the decision that's ahead of me and you. And I know as I look out at many of you, many of us, we have put our faith in Jesus. But I think when we read this story, we need to be reminded, this is the centerpiece of our faith. We celebrate the resurrection, the life, the eternal life that we have in him. But the reason we celebrate that is he died for us. And so what are you gonna do about the story of the God that hung on a cross? Are you sharing it with your children? Are you taking it with you to work? Are you living it out every day? Because this is what our, this is the songs we sing. This is the reason that we gather together on a regular basis. In a moment, we're gonna share communion together to commemorate his death in our place. But I wanna speak to those of you that have never made your decision. I want you to know your eternal life hangs in the balance. You can reject Jesus and try it on your own. It's not gonna work. Or you can receive the gift of salvation that he has made available. After service today, if you want to talk with somebody about what it looks like to receive that gift, I would love to talk with you. Dan would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. But it's a decision that you can make today. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this story of your son, our king, who hung on a cross to pay for our sins. Father, would you forgive us for becoming so familiar with this story that we just, we kind of move on through life. Holy Spirit, would you remind us of what this story means, what it represents? On the days that we think that we're doing really good, we're not good enough to enter into your kingdom apart from this story. And on the days that we think that we're doing horrible, we can't enter into your kingdom without the details of this story. So for those of us that have made our decision about Jesus, would you help us to follow you faithfully to share this story of the God that hung on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. But I wanna pray for my friends that are listening today that have never made a decision. They're on the fence. They're trying to put the pieces together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give them clarity, that they would come to know Jesus. They would trust in his death for their sins and they would discover eternal life. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.